Welcome, I'm glad you're here. I appreciate you being here on this day. Um, didn't snow, so we're all good to go. Glad that you came out. Um, leftover day was pretty pretty good. I um, I need to confess my, my struggle <clears throat> with a study like this is simply the fact that there are no throwaway verses in the Bible. Uh, every word is important. It's all inspired by, by the Spirit of God. It all has a message of, of God's revelation of Himself and His purposes. And so it's frustrating to, um, to try and teach a book like this when every verse has depth to it. And uh, I actually left one day this week. My wife is a, is a good wife. She's not here, so I can I can say things about her. But I said, I said, oh man, that was just terrible. And she knew where I was headed because it's a real frustration for me to um, to feel like I haven't done justice to the Word of God when I teach. And I said, that was just terrible. Because my struggle is. I don't want to just teach random. Here we're going to talk about this subject, and now we're going to talk about that subject, and now we're going to talk about this subject. There's a flow of thought here. And so I have to, to skip over things or blaze right past certain sections, but yet I still have to show the consistency of Paul's line of thought. And I said, that was just terrible. That was a terrible lesson. And my sweet wife, she said, baby... Nobody knows what you left out. <laughs> they only heard what you said, and, and it was okay. It was good. Okay. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me a good wife. So I, 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 there's one part of me that wants to apologize. It's, it's really not fair to attempt a book like this in the time frame that we have. And yet, at the same time, there is value even if we're flying at 30,000 feet, there is value of seeing an entire book of the Bible in, in survey mode. Even if it's rushed, even if you can't explore it to the depths, the success of this week will be if you walk away not saying, wow, I've, I, I now know so much about the book of Ephesians. The success this week <clears throat> would be if you walked away and said, you know what? I'm going to go back to the beginning and I'm going to slowly walk through this book and spend some time here because what the pastor did was he piqued my interest. So let me encourage you to do that because we, we barely scratch the surface of this book that is really one of the great, great books of the New Testament. We've come through all of Paul's theological explanation, the first three chapters, two, two uh, high and lofty intercessory prayers that he includes in those chapters. We saw in chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5, he talks about how because of what, it, what God has done that he described in the first three chapters, he spends four in the first part of five talking about what that means for us, how we live in a manner worthy of the high calling that we've, that we've received. Well, now, he's going to take us from 
our walk with Jesus and what that looks like because of who we are in Christ. And he's going he's gonna to take us down to the nitty gritty of how we relate and interact to the people who are closest around us. You see, really, it's not that difficult to be, um, you know, Sally Saint when you show up at church on Sunday. You sort of put your Sunday clothes on. With that, you put on your Sunday demeanor. Um, you you sort of bring out the costume that says, "I'm a I, I'm a, a quiet, spirited, growing Christian, and I'm going to appear that way to all the people that I meet today." You can pull that off on Sunday with people who only see you once a week. What you can't do is you can't pull that off in the everyday uh, coming and going of life in your family, in your marriage relationship, in your parenting relationship or grandparenting relationship, in your work relationships. Uh, You can't be somebody that you're not uh, for people that see you all the time. And so that's where Ephesians is going to really start to get start to meddle because he's he's taken us on a, a, a lofty flight of theology and we've marveled at who God is and what he's done for us. And then he talked about what it means for us to be a people who imitate God and what that looks like, the development of Christ like character. And we can sort of go through that and say, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I want. That's who I want to be. But now Paul is going to say, let's talk about the Christian life and the everyday implications of that life for the people that you're in closest relationship to. And so in in chapter 5, verse 21, you see in the outline that I've given you, I've called it concentric circles of influence. And he's going to talk about the marriage relationship. He's going to talk about family life or particularly parents and children. And then he's going to talk about the workplace. And when we get to the workplace, he's going to put it in terms of uh, of masters and slaves because that was was the the white-collar, blue-collar relationships of the ancient Roman world. But for us, the principles can apply in the world of the job that we do, the boss that we have, the responsibilities that we carry out with the people that we work alongside. And then he's going to take us, you'll see in your outline, to engaging spiritual battles. And one of, the, one of the great secrets of Ephesians that I love is if there's any part of Ephesians that you've probably heard of, you've probably heard these verses out of chapter 5. They're often read at weddings um, and used that way, so they're pretty familiar. But when you get to chapter 6, you have... Uh, this discussion of the spiritual w- weapons of our warfare, the, 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 the armor of God, we, we call it. That, those are familiar verses, but often we just, because we just zoom right to that and we talk about spiritual warfare and, and we talk about angels and demons and, 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 and those kinds of things, what we fail to see and, and what a study like this from 30,000 feet reminds us is that at the end of this book he's talking about the everyday life of a christian husbands and wives parents and children workers uh, bosses and workers 
spiritual warfare. It's not like he wraps up this part of the book and then says, oh, and there's one more thing. Now let's go talk about this. He flows out of the everyday expressions of the Christian faith right into the way we engage those enemies who stand against our God, and because they hate God, they hate us. And he talks about how we engage in spiritual warfare. But what the lesson that we need to draw from that right up front before we even get to those verses is this. Spiritual warfare is not the, the, the special reserve uh, of a certain category of people. It's not reserved for certain pastors who, who take particular classes in seminary. This, this, it's not some esoteric, um, you know, weird thing that's sort of out on the fringe. To live with an awareness and an understanding of how we engage the invisible realm is just as normal and just as ordinary to the Christian life as talking about our spousal relationships, our parental relationships, our work relationships. It's not weird. It's who we are. And it's just one more natural implication of the fact that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, empowered by His Spirit who is the seal, the guarantee of what God is doing in us. And because we have the ministry of Christ, because we operate in the authority of Christ, because we're marked by the name of Christ, our ability to be involved through intercessory prayer, through use of the Word as our offensive weapon, that is just as ordinary and normal as being nice to your wife and wise toward your children. All right. Let's see where this takes us. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to drop back and actually begin with verse 21. Uh, it's probably divided in your Bible as the final verse of the previous section. But verse 21 is a summary verse that both wraps up what he's been talking about before this and, and, and pivots us to the practical implications that are going to come after this. So we're going to start with verse 21. He says, And subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Now before we read anything else, this is a necessary foundation. There's a general principle of mutual submission that, is, that he's going to talk about here. And it, is not, uh, it not only is a product of the filling of the Holy Spirit, but it's the foundation of the more specific principles of authority and submission that he's going to talk about in the closing sections of this book. When he says, subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ, what Paul is describing is the relationship between individuals that is so bathed in humility, love, and mutual submission that authority becomes almost invisible and submission is no more than acting out of respect and gracious love. The basic principle here is submit yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. In other words, the prerequisite for a proper marriage is a spirit-filled life. Listen, that is a question that is that plagues pastors in our generation and pastors come to different conclusions 
about whether they can marry a couple or not. Um, I, I have married a couple that had um, one person who was not a believer. I've done that one time in my ministry, and I have sorely regretted it ever since. I hear all the arguments that people give me. They'll say, well, you know, if we don't marry them, they'll go get married somewhere else. And, and we, you know, we, 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 we risk cutting them off and, and, and losing contact. But see, here's the thing. Marriage is a remarkable invention by God. Now, it is natural. It is the natural state for adult men and women. The Bible gives special... Uh, descriptions of those who are called by God to be single, but the normal, natural condition of adult humans is to be in a marriage relationship. It's not required, it's not exclusive, but it's ordinary. But it is marked in every part of it as something that is designed to paint a picture of how God relates to Himself within the Trinity and how He relates to us. That's why the image of, of Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride of Christ. And so, when a marriage doesn't have the necessary foundation of two people who are, who are actively pursuing uh, the life of Christ and, and seeking the fruitfulness of Christ-like character... Um, I think it's dangerous to put the blessing of a church service as a stamp of approval on that relationship. Now, you may disagree with me. That is just where I have come down in my life. But I don't, I don't marry people who are not equally yoked and pursuing Jesus Christ. He says, out of this foundation of subjecting yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ, he goes on to say this, and this is where we, we're going we're gonna to see, uh, first of all, uh, the wife, and then he'll talk to the husband. He says, wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, there may be verses in the Bible more often misinterpreted and wrongly understood than these verses, but I would be hard-pressed to find them. These verses have been used in more uh, bizarre ways than almost any other uh, collection of Scripture. Over and over again, the New Testament calls us to a new dimension of existence. The way of Christ is a new way of thinking, a new way of acting, a new way of living. In fact, we go all the way back to, uh, to, to chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Um, verse 24 of chapter 4, he said, I want you to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's a fundamentally different kind of life. That's why marriage requires two people who are both seeking after Jesus. Now here, wives, subject yourselves 
Uh, some versions say submit. My, my version says subject. Actually, the word is not in the Greek. The Greek literally says wives to your own husbands. But it flows out of verse 21 where he says subject yourselves or submit yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. That's the general principle. Then he says, okay, let's start with wives. Wives, you do that to your own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, oh, by the way, this is, these verses cannot be used to justify uh, a male-dominated society with females as second-class citizens. This is not instruction of how men are to treat women. This is about the specific relationship of a husband with a wife. Wives, sub subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, your relationship to your husband should be a natural outflow of the submissive relationship that you have to the Lord. Submission is to be a voluntary response to God's will that involves giving up your own independent rights to other believers in general and to ordained authority in particular. Unlike what we often see in, in, in old-time marriage vows, it does not say here obey, but it says place yourself under the authority of your husband. In the same way that spiritual gifts, we talked about spiritual gifts, God gives to his people spiritual gifts, then he gives gifted people as gifts to the church. Spiritual gifts involve putting yourself under, uh, submitting to an authority uh, of, the, of the one who is the head of the church. So being under that authority is entirely functional. That's what this is. This is not a foundational statement about value. It's not about uh, one being better or more important or more significant than the other. It's simply Paul saying, out of the necessary foundation of, of submitting to each other, giving up our rights so that being right with each other is more important than being right objectively. And that, because that's the case, he says, he says, wives, put yourself under the authority of your husbands. Now, he says, do it as to the Lord. Everything we do should be done first for God's glory and to please Him. It's true that spouses often fail to inspire respect, but this approach to marriage is not based on the worthiness of the spouse. It's based upon my spirit-filled life of obedience to God. Do I live to the level of my spouse or do I live to the level of Christ? You see, the question is, particularly in marital relationships that are struggling, the question is, do you trust God enough to try it His way? There's a motive here. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Now, there are people who love to quote this first part of the verse, for the husband is the head. But they don't finish the verse, just as Christ also is the head of the church. The husband is assigned the role for functional purposes, and the wife is to recognize that that's the way marriage works. Just like a physical body without direction from the head is crippled, paralyzed, or spastic, a woman who rejects her functional role is also spiritually dysfunctional. She lives out that role 
in order to honor the Lord. The humility that it takes to do that testifies to the world that she believes in something beyond herself. But the model here is is that the, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. Christ is the definition of self-sacrifice. He is the divine role model for husbands. He is the divine role uh, he's the divine role model for husbands as he relates to the church. Jesus is the divine role model for wives as he relates to the father. There is nothing in this chapter that plans for the exaltation of men or the suppression of women. But it points to the possibility for both to share in the fulfillment of a spirit-filled life. Well, now he's going to turn to the husbands. And notice that the passage for the husbands is much longer. It's interesting that we spend so much time telling wives to submit to their husbands. Frankly, husbands need to quit worrying about their wives submitting, and they need to focus on the verses that tell them what to do. Verse 25, husbands. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, as for you individually, each husband is to love his own wife the same as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The manner that he calls husbands to treat their wives is, uh, involves a number of things. He says the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Here's the continued discussion of mutual submission, but it's primarily a submission that is through the boundless love that is modeled in Christ and provided by Christ. That love, first of all, is sacrificial. The world's love is object-oriented, merit-driven, based on performance and worthiness. But divine love is offered because it cannot be otherwise. It is an act of will, not emotion. It seems to be a principle in human existence that whatever we choose to love and practice loving soon becomes attractive to us. You see, we've turned love out of Hollywood. We've made love into a sentimental feeling. And we say things like, well, I just don't feel anything for him anymore. Well, I just don't. I'm just not attracted to her anymore. I don't care. I mean, honestly, I don't care. When you decide that you're going to act in a loving way towards something, when you decide that you're going to put yourself out in a self-sacrificial way uh, for another person, it is like night following day, your heart becomes attached in a fresh way. And you find yourself drawn to the very thing that you thought you had lost interest in. 
We don't fall out of love. We quit practicing love and we lose that love and feeling. But don't let the love and feeling be what we determine as the, the, the measuring stick for whether we love or not. We're commanded to love this way because it is God's will. And to die as Jesus died for the church, to be willing for a, for a husband to be willing to die is to imply all the lesser sacrifices as well. I can't tell you how many years it's been since I've played golf uh, more than once or twice a year. I used to play golf all the time. And yet at some point, um, it, it began to, to, to draw me away from my family in the rare free times that I had uh, as a busy pastor. And so I laid it down. I have a beautiful set of golf clubs in my garage that gather dust. Don't feel sorry for me because in practicing love and giving attention to my wife and my family, I got way more, at least for me, than the best golf scores I, uh, I might have ever gotten if I'd stayed with the game. There's a sacrifice. And if you're willing to die, it implies all lesser sacrifices are worthwhile as well. This love is purifying. He says in verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Now, that's, he's talking about how Jesus relates to the church, and he immediately follows up in verse 28 by saying, so husbands also ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. There's a purification involved here. The divine does not simply condemn wrong in those that it loves, but it seeks to cleanse them from it. It seeks to protect, uh, to, Jesus seems to, seeks to protect the church from defilement and, and from, the, uh, from the effects of worldliness. A husband should have that mindset towards his wife. He should never induce her to do wrong or expose her to evil. This is why premarital sex, the sex before marriage is so damaging because it is taking what is being given to you as a precious gift and it is defiling it in a way that will do permanent damage. It's why postmarital flirtations are such a problem. Don't take up habits, hobbies, don't watch movies or television that makes your wife uncomfortable because it is your sole job above all others on the planet to see that she is protected from those things that would seek to cheapen her or defile her or make her less than the precious gift God meant for her to be. There's a caring here. He says, a husband is to love his own wife as he loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. This caring, there's something wrong if a wife is only a cook, a housekeeper, a convenient companion, and an occasional sex partner. The words here in Greek, nourish means to provide for her needs, to give her what is necessary to grow and mature in the Lord. The word cherish means to use tender love and physical affection to provide warmth, protection, and security. Those responsibilities are primarily the husbands and not the wives. The devil attacks women in two ways, uniquely. 
not exclusively, but but he he has he has certain attacks. He attacks. Let me tell you how he attacks men. He attacks men at the position of of their worth, their sufficiency. That's why it is so important for a wife to build her husband up and not tear him down, to tell her that she's proud of what he's doing, that she's that, that she's honored, that he works hard, that he that he does his best. Because the, because I promise you, the devil is whispering in his ear, "You really suck at being a husband. You're a bad father. You're not good at this at all." Men live with that all the time. That voice in our head that tells us if people really knew who you were, they they wouldn't be your friends. You're bad at this. That's the way the devil attacks men. I'll tell you how the devil attacks women. Two primary ways. He attacks women at the point of their self-esteem and at the point of their security. It is the husband's job to build up his wife so that she has the confidence to understand that he sees her not only as a unique and special creation by God made for a unique purpose, but that he views her as a gift given to him in particular. But also security. Women have, uh, uh, they are very susceptible to the enemy always suggesting to them all the ways that they're going to end up out on the street. Your husband's going to lose his job. You're going to be without income. You're going to be homeless. You're going to lose your house. It is the husband's job to do his best to provide security for his wife because that is a real point of attack in the life of a woman. For him to nourish her is to provide what she needs. For him to cherish her is to secure and protect her with tender love and affection so that she knows that that she is his uh, greatest priority after following Jesus. This bond is unbreakable. He quotes uh, that quotation from Adam and Eve uh, in the book of Genesis. God hates divorce really for any reason. He tolerates it in certain instances and he will forgive it as any other sin, but he never changes his hatred of it. Even for adultery, the entire book of Hosea is an example of forgiveness even in the face of the most heinous marital betrayals. When a husband sees faults in his wife, he must realize that she has not offended him to a fraction of the degree that, she, that, he, that he himself has offended God. We're back to humility in the way we view ourselves and mutual subjection to one another in the fear of the Lord. He sums it up by saying, this mystery is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, as for you individually, each husband is to love his own wife the same as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. See, what he did there was by saying, husbands, love your wife. He's saying, meet her deepest needs, her need for security, her need for self-esteem. Love her. You communicate those things. You protect her in those two areas of attack by loving her practically and intentionally but wives you're to respect your husband why 
Because Paul is acknowledging that you are providing the very thing that your husband needs because of the unique area of attack against him. Well, again, we've just scratched the surface of those verses. But let's go on. Chapter 6, he talks about family life. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may turn out well for you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The first three verses talk about the submission of children. They are to obey their parents. The word actually means uh, to listen with attentiveness and respond positively. Uh, children are often told in movies and television shows that their parents are hopelessly out of touch and that they are somehow too stupid to believe or follow. It's always interesting how uh, the smartest people on the planet are always those people who have the least amount of life experience. Teenagers think that they roll with the roll of their eyes. They think that their parents are, are, are just so out of touch that that it's just not fair that they have to do what they say. When the fact is, uh, I'm pretty sure most teenagers would never make it to adulthood and survive to see their adulthood if they didn't have some parents who at least knew a little bit about how to get through life. The submission of children is there, and he says it's important. Why? Because it is right. Verse 1. It's right because it's based on God's declaration, not because of psychological case studies. What this word means where he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. He means because this is as it should be. Parents are not infallible, but they are a child's primary God-given authority and source of training. You can go to Proverbs 1.8 for that. The parenting paradigm, let me just, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to read it to you. If you look at Luke chapter 2, Verse 52, you see an interesting model of what parents should do. Luke 2.52 is the last verse that we have uh, from the uh, childhood of Jesus. He disappears from the pages of Scripture until he emerges as a fully grown man about the age of 30 and, uh, and, and begins his public ministry. But in Luke 2.52 it says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. What it means is that his parents raised him so that intellectually they were responsible for the content and the framework or the worldview that he developed as a child. That's how he kept increasing in wisdom. People who tell me, well, I'm just going to, we're not going to force any religion on our kids. We're just going to let them grow up and make their own decisions. That is called abdicating parental responsibility. You are responsible. For giving them the content and the framework to think correctly about reality. It says Jesus was increasing in wisdom and stature. Stature speaks to the physical needs. A parent is responsible for the health and nutrition uh, and the physical growth of a child. It says here, Jesus increased in favor with God and people. Favor with God, that's his spiritual life. A child must be taught the things of God. That's where this whole section of Ephesians chapter 5 and, and, and the first verses of 6 apply. We have been given stewardship over young lives for the purpose 
of producing a certain kind of adult. That takes work intellectually, physically, spiritually, but also socially. It says Jesus grew in favor with God and with people. What we have to do with our children is we have to eliminate their tendency towards self-centeredness. We need to develop in them the mindset of submission to authority. I can't blame everything that's happening in our generation only on parents. But I tell you, if we had done a better job of raising our kids with their intellectual content, raising them to be physically healthy, raising them to be socially responsible and not self-centered, and giving them some sort of spiritual content, we would not be where we are today. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He moves now to fathers, representative, representative of both parents. And this is frankly a totally new concept in the first century, especially in a pagan stronghold like Ephesus where, uh, where fathers had the, the virtual power of life and death over their children. Children were seen as property. The idea that a parent had any kind of uh, obligation uh, to be careful towards his children, to not provoke them to anger, uh, that, was, that was a radical concept that only Christianity was teaching. A parent is supposed to have a repeated ongoing pattern. Uh, a, a parent is supposed to avoid a repeated ongoing pattern of treatment that builds anger and resentment in the life of a child. For goodness sakes, quit overprotecting them like a, like a helicopter parent. Quit showing favoritism toward one child versus another child in the family. Quit pushing them to achieve things that are beyond reasonable bounds because you're replaying your own shortcomings through them. Quit trying to interfere with the hard lessons that they have to learn in life. Quit expecting children to behave like adults. Quit using love as a tool of reward and, and punishment. And quit talking ugly. There is no place for angry, physical touch, or sarcastic, biting language in a parental relationship toward their children. Again, we're just scratching the surface, but this is a, a, a radical concept. Moving to the, to, to the realm of work, he says in verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Now this is in, the, in terms of slavery. Uh, this is a whole message by itself, but let me just suffice it to say that, uh, the, that slavery in the ancient Roman world was not the same kind of slavery that we think about in American history. Um, it does mean that there was a person who had no legal rights, who was treated as a commercial commodity, but indentured servants were often considered to be part of the, the extended family. Most businesses in the ancient world were family businesses, and most slaves were highly trained in, 
in business or some other skill and were used as, as uh, employees who ran the family business. Often they were teachers for the family's children. Uh, they were accountants, bookkeepers. They were uh, merchants. They were doctors. Many doctors in the ancient world were slaves who were educated to, do, to practice medicine. The issue of slavery was uh, about sub subjection, but Christianity takes a beating from people who go, well, the Bible doesn't even condemn slavery. Well, that's called historical uh, illiteracy. Because the reality is, for the last 2,000 years, everywhere that New Testament principles have been enacted, it has led inevitably to the eradication of slavery. The Bible, though, doesn't focus on social reform. It focuses on the transformation of hearts, which then plays out with different ways. Not to take pot shots at other religions, but there are uh, ongoing slave trades today in the 21st century in this world. It's not a thing of the 19th century that's long gone. There are slaves, but they are typically in the Muslim and Hindu worlds. Why? Because those religions don't have a theology of the sanctity of life, of individuals being created with worth and value. Everywhere Christianity is dominant, eventually slavery dies out. Now, we use these verses as principles of the work relationship. Basically, he says, employees, you're to have right actions. You're supposed to do what's right. You're supposed to be the best worker in your place of business because your first obligation is to please Christ and have a faithful testimony to him. Being a Christian should make a person better, more productive, and more agreeable in his workplace. You're to have the right attitude. You're not to roll your eyes. You're not to talk bad about the boss behind his back. There should be a, a sincerity of heart that means you're not hypocritical or superficial, but you're genuinely devoted to the success of the company that you work for. But then he turns on employers. And he says, but masters, employers, do the same things to them and give up threatening. The first work is to do God's will. If you're a Christian boss, you put Christ on display with every workplace interaction that you have. You either demonstrate Christ's likeness or you compromise your testimony. He says, give up threatening. Don't use, don't use your authority as a club against other people. You use it justly when needed, but you use it as little as possible. Again, we go all the way back to verse 20, uh, verse 21, and he's talking about mutual submission in all relationships as a statement of loyalty to Christ. You see, we have to behave like Jesus even if our co-workers are not Christians. But if they are Christians, then we have an even greater responsibility because we both answer to the same master. Verse 10 is where we turn. You see there's no hard transfer here. He simply moves into the next realm, which, which I think makes uh, spiritual warfare 
something that is not uh, set, set apart. It's just the next natural part of what it means to live out our Christian faith. He says in these verses, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For, your struggle is not against, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be alert with all perseverance and every request for all the saints. Let's talk real quickly about this, this description. The believer is told to be strong, but literally the Greek here means be made powerful. Now, it's in a passive tense. Be made powerful. What that tells us is that a person cannot strengthen himself. He must be empowered. The source is in the Lord. This qualification at once does away with the temptation for us to think that there's the possibility of anything we offer to be adequate. Think about it simply in this way. Christians are never intended to be spiritually weak. But we must take steps to be spiritually strong. But those steps must always recognize that our strength is not our own. We're not meant to be weak. But in order to be strong, we have to do that on purpose. But to do that on purpose, we have to understand that it has to come from someone else. Here's the enemy. In verses 11 through, through 13, um, I wish I could spend more time here, but let me just see if I can give you a quick summary. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Then he's going he's gonna to talk uh, the schemes of the devil. Uh, the idea here is that, that, that Satan is a mastermind of crafty strategy and subtle attack. Open warfare is not his typical tactic. Now, there are two real ways that, that, that Satan um, attacks, and people don't understand this. His two primary methods, with lots of variations within these categories, is um, open assault, a frontal attack, if you will, and subtlety or deception, a guerrilla attack, if you will. I hear people sometimes they'll say things like, well, well, you know, we hear about miracles all the time over on the mission field and in, 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 in places, and how can we not ever see anything like that here? Well, I have an explanation for you. It's because in other parts of the world, where they are typically coming out of uh, an animistic or a, uh, a, a, a belief system that sees spirits in trees and rocks and bushes and clouds and the sun, and, and, and the world is awash with spirit, spiritual beings, in that kind of world, Satan often presents himself 
as the most powerful force. It's an attack of intimidation. And often the response is that God steps in and intervenes with a clash of power. Take take, uh, Ezekiel, uh, not Ezekiel, take Elijah on Mount Carmel. There were 850 false prophets, and here was the deal. We're going to both put out sacrifices. We're going to ask the gods to, to bring fire. We'll have everything necessary, but except for the fire, the, 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 the gods have one job, just provide fire, and we'll believe. Well, they danced all day. They sang. They cut themselves. They, 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 they chanted. They did everything. End of the day, their, their, uh, their sacrifice was just laying there rotting. No fire had fallen from heaven. Elijah steps up, he douses it with water to make sure nobody misunderstands what's happening here. He prays to his God, and the real God drops fire and consumes everything. The sacrifice, the wood altar, every part of it laps up all of the water. What was that? That was a power encounter between the real God and false gods. God responds in power encounters in places in the world where Satan attacks with a frontal, a front, a full frontal assault. That's not how he does things here. We don't live in a world where we see demons and spiritual beings behind every rock and tree. In fact, we live in a culture that doesn't believe in any of that stuff. We're fully secular. We think that's all a bunch of hooey. So why would Satan show himself to people who are more inclined to be tricked because they don't believe in Him. Our battles in this part of the world tend to be guerrilla attacks. They tend to be, they tend to be uh, uh, deceptions and, and, and false doctrines. Those who, who claim to speak truth who in fact only speak lies. That's why we have to have this armor. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers. That word means senior leaders with delegated authority and power. I think this speaks to the fallen angels of some stature who followed Satan when he fell from his place of honor in heaven. It says against the powers. The powers. The, the, um, the, sometimes that's translated authorities. Jewish commentaries seem to, uh, not Jewish commentaries, early Christian commentaries seem to view this word as describing uh, what we might call the lords over demons who have a power to act in Satan's name. We might call them middle management demons. Then he says, against the world forces of this darkness, the powers of this dark world, those are territorial spirits and and, and pagan gods who promote darkness and, and, and demand loyalty of world leaders. Then he says, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, these are all of Satan's followers, the evil spirits operating in the invisible and non-material realm. Pastor, you're an educated man. You really believe in demons? Not only do I believe in demons, I've met a few. They are not to be trifled with. Which is why I don't watch horror movies. I don't watch demon possession movies. I don't watch paranormal movies. I don't watch documentaries about ghosts and other such things because they are not fun distractions. 
they are real and they are evil and they will do harm. But I don't run and hide from them. Why? Because I've been given a reminder of what I have to stand against them. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth. The belt of truth, this speaks about our personal integrity that comes from an understanding of biblical revelation. The belt of truth helps us to uh, stand firm against the temptation of taking the shortcut. Of, in, of Instead of doing the hard work to be prepared as a follower of Jesus, that we just... Uh, uh, we're just content to, to cut corners and, and make it as easy as possible. The belt of truth, the picture here is of a belt that a soldier would have put on as his first piece of armor because what it would do was it, it, it would have tied up uh, the, the flowing clothes that he wore so that it gave him freedom of movement in battle. When we know truth, we have the ability to move and respond in battle. But it's followed by saying, then, after you've belted your waist with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is the act of deliberate obedience, of imputed standing before Christ. This breastplate protects our heart, which is the conscious, which is the place of conscious choice to do right. To put on the breastplate of righteousness in the morning is to say, today I'm going to oppose the temptation of lowering my standards. He says, put on, strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace, the sandals of peace. This is a dependence in the trustworthiness of the gospel. There was something that Roman soldiers had that their enemies often didn't have. The Romans had developed uh, a type of sandal, a type of shoe in the ancient world. They were the only people that had it. Those sandals had spikes, like what we would call cleats. And in the field, often awash in water and blood, they were able to stand when those around them were slipping and falling and, and, and couldn't get a grip. For us, a secure foothold in battle comes from having an absolute trust in the power of the gospel. This opposes the temptation for us to have doubt, fear, anxiety, and worry. Put on the sandals of peace. Man, when you pray in the morning, you need to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to follow truth today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be ready to move at whatever comes because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be belted by truth. I'm going to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The, where I make my choices, I'm going to protect those, uh, that, that heart that I have. I'm going to protect it from the attack of the evil one. I won't lower my standards. And I'm going to put the sandals of peace on my feet. I'm going to understand that in Christ, in the gospel, in the power of the gospel that saves me, I have the ability to stand against any assault of the enemy that comes my way. He said, then in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith which, which you, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith means our reliance upon God for divine protection. Roman shields had a lar were large with a leather cover, and the cover was, um, was often uh, moistened, so when flaming arrows came at them, the shield could be held up, the arrow would stick into the shield, but the leather would literally extinguish the flame. 
What he's telling us here is you get up in the morning and you make a resolution to stay with God. The shield opposes the temptation of self-reliance because you understand that you're protected by something outside of yourself. But then he says, take the helmet of salvation. (laughs) If you want to have a fearlessness in battle, if you want to guarantee your security in Christ, if you want to have protection from the power of sin, you put on the helmet of salvation because that is the daily morning reminder that your mind is safe from the influences of the dark world around us because you are bathed in the salvation that has come to you from Jesus Christ. And then he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the memorized, meditated upon Word of God. This is the weapon. The rest of it is defensive. Satan will argue with you all day long if you'll argue with him. What did he do with with Eve in the garden? They just had a good old conversation. But here's the problem. Eve wasn't as good at it as Satan was. And And look where it led her. Let's look at the temptation of Eve in the garden and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. What did Jesus do? Three temptations, three times he quoted Scripture. Why? Because Satan didn't have an answer. And I love, there's one temptation, Jesus swipes it away with, with, with Scripture. There's a second temptation, Jesus deflects it with Scripture. There's a third temptation, Jesus quotes Scripture. And then in one of the really underrated verses of the Bible, it says, and Satan departed. Listen. The problem with spiritual warfare is that there are people who, who sort of love the idea of it. And so they want to they engage in it. They want to they they go toe-to-toe with the enemy. I don't want to go toe-to-toe with the enemy. I'm going to put on every piece of defensive armor I can, and I'm going to use the only weapon I have because I know that that's the only way that the enemy will depart from me. I don't want him to stick around. I don't want to have a debate. I don't want to try and talk him, you know, out of whatever he's saying. You know, hey, listen, nobody will know. Nobody will know if you go do this. Yeah, well, don't, don't no, no, yeah, well. I, I, I'm not going to have that conversation. Nobody will know. You can get away with this. Yeah, maybe I could, except see what it says here. I'm supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that I've received. You see, the only way to win in spiritual warfare is to be adept with your weapon. Why do people who actually use swords, why do they practice all the time? Because they want to they be skilled at it. We think, well, I've got a, I've got a Bible on my phone I can, I can search for anything I want. You know, I've never seen Satan come at me and say, uh, listen, I, here's, here's the temptation. Why don't you take a few minutes and go get your phone and see if you can come up with a verse. You know, the Spirit in me has to have ammunition. I have to already have put the Word of God in my life so that it's right there because they're sneak attacks. 
those flaming arrows that he shoots at us, you know why that's the image of spiritual warfare? Because he hardly ever comes up and comes at me for hand-to-hand combat. He shoots at me from the bushes. Because he's a coward, for one thing, and because he wants to catch me off guard. I have to have my armor on and I have to have my weapon well-trained to respond. Pilgrim's Progress, I'm going way over. Stick with me. Pilgrim's Progress is one of the the great allegories of all time written by John Bunyan. And he draws a lot. I mentioned on the first night that he draws a lot of his uh, imagery in that that book from from Ephesians. But I want to read an excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. This is where um, uh, Christian is the name of the main character. And he becomes a believer and he's on the journey to the celestial city. And it's an allegory of coming out of sin, meeting Jesus, and then living the Christian life and facing all of the challenges. But, there's the, but this relates specifically to Ephesians chapter 6. John Bunyan says this, speaking about Christian, he says, but now in this valley of humiliation, poor Christian was hard put to it. For he had gone but a little way when he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. His name was Apollyon. That's a name for Satan that comes out of the book of Revelation. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn the back to him might give him greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore, he resolved to venture forth and stand his ground. For, thought he, had I no more in mine eye than the saving of my life, it would still be the best way to stand. We do not retreat because we have no protection for running away. We only have protection for advancing into battle. Well, the book closes this way. He has said, pray with every uh, prayer, with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit. We could talk about that verse. That's a, a marvelous verse. But in, in chapter, in verse 19, he, he turns to, to a personal close. And Paul says, and pray in my behalf that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, so that you also may know about my circumstances as to what what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. I want to finish just with Paul's request for himself and just make an appeal on behalf of all of your pastors he says in verse 19 and pray in behalf and pray in my behalf that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which i am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it i may speak boldly as i ought to speak here's the way you should pray for your pastors Often people will tell me they're praying for me, but let me see if I can give you some content for those prayers. You need to pray that God would give what what I would call a divine donation to your pastors. 
Remember, we've talked about these prayers of Paul in this book and how he's not just praying for circumstances, he's praying for deep spiritual needs. What your pastors most often need is we need to have an awareness of the Spirit of God working through us at all times because what we do by nature is intimidating, it is overwhelming, and we need regular awareness that God is at work in us and through us. You can ask God for some sort of definite demonstration of His power in their lives. Depending on what different pastors do as a part of, of this body, you can pray particularly for them. In my position, this idea uh, that, that Paul asks, pray that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the Gospel. Whether it is the preaching that I do from this pulpit on Sundays, the teaching that I do on Wednesday nights, or whether it is by, by modern technology through truth currents. You really have no idea the weight that comes with attempting to speak truth. I, I, I like it when people thank me for, for what I do and, and they say, thank you, it's, it's hard to find truth and, and, and thank you for, for being faithful to speak truth. That's a, that's a, a deeply meaningful compliment. But what you may not understand that's behind that is in this generation, speaking truth is, a, um, is an exhausting responsibility. So I identify with this prayer that you might pray that speech would be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the ministry of the gospel so that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And where you find your pastors being faithful, let me suggest that you thank God for the gift of determination in your pastors as they lead, and that you ask that His Spirit provide encouragement to our spirits in what we do. I don't want the book of Ephesians to end as though it's all about me. But Paul has taken them and us to the mountaintop to see who God is, but then to see who we are as a result of what God has done. He's laid out the reality of what it means. And I have no illusion. These, these, these verses about how to live in a marriage relationship, how to live in a parental relationship, how to live in a work relationship, how to, how to deal with spiritual warfare, I understand it's simple when it's on the page. It's hard. It's hard to figure out. It's hard to live out in the real world. But that doesn't excuse us from striving to achieve that standard of Christ-likeness. Being a pastor is, a, is an awesome gift. But there are days when it is a dreadful burden. So if your pastors, and I don't just mean me, I mean all of your pastors, if your pastors 
make what they do look easy, that's just because we've been at it a while. But don't be fooled. We need your intercession on our behalf. That God would make Himself known to us. And that as we pour out, that God would be pouring into us more than is pouring out. Because one of the real dangers of spiritual leadership is running dry. And just like everybody else, we leak. We not only pour out to the people that have been put in our charge, but we leak because we're not all yet that we will be. So pray for us. You, in your giftedness, are a gift to this church. In the same way, a church will rise or fall on the quality of its spiritual leadership. So pastors are also a gift to the church. May you pray for us with the desperation that we pray for You. Father, thank You so much. The book of Ephesians has been a challenge. It has pushed us. It is beyond what is easy for us to understand. But Father, to take these hours in this week and to find ourselves here deep in this precious teaching from the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the tradition that we have here of this winter Bible study. And Father, may it simply compel us to move deeper still into the treasures to be found in Your Word. Thank You for the privilege that You've given the pastors here to serve a people called Evergreen. Thank You for what You have accomplished in this place and what You continue to do. And Father, as Your eyes roam to and fro across the earth, may You stop and look here and find a people whose hearts are united and completely devoted to You. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.